0: Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, Olympian and table tennis champion Matthew Syed talks about the science of success and how you can learn to love failure.
1: Thank you. What I'd like to do over the course of this presentation, about 45 minutes if that's okay, is try and bring together some of the arguments I make in Bounce, the book that was kindly mentioned, and also the arguments in my next one, my new one, Black Box Thinking. And both of these really are about high level performance. How do we succeed? How do we excel? How do we reach world class levels of attainment? And I want to take aim right at the start. And this is one of the real principles of bounce at this very seductive and pervasive idea in the world today that success is predominantly or exclusively about natural talent that's to say you're born with the right sort of gifts or aptitudes or in the scientific vocabulary the right kind of genetic inheritance that enable you to excel then you have another group of people who lack those gifts or aptitudes who I don't mean this group in particular (laughs) who, who don't have the right kind of genetic inheritance and by implication are destined, at best, for mediocrity. I want to argue briefly that this conception of success, and I think that it is to a large extent a cornerstone of Western culture, is at best misleading and at worst highly destructive. Destructive in a measurable way of the people who buy into it and corrosive also of the institutions, whether schools or sports clubs or businesses, that construct their culture upon it and i'm going to argue that success not that talent is irrelevant but there are wider issues at stake culture environment mindset and in particular the willingness and tenacity to learn from our mistakes now it was said in the intro that before becoming a writer i was a table tennis player a few giggles uh, at that uh, point point. Um, and it was very striking when i played on the international circuit how often People would watch me playing against an international level opponent and say, Matthew, you're incredibly blessed, believe it or not. And they would see the elegance and all around skill and sophistication of my game. (laughs) But they would also see, and this is the thing that they would attribute the success to, super fast reactions. I don't know if anyone caught the table tennis on the telly uh, during the Olympics in London 2012 but it's one of the fastest sports on the planet, and the acoustics of table tennis are quite distinctive. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ching 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 The ball crossing the net three or four times a second. And so it's quite natural when watching two very good players in action to say, well, they've been blessed with super fast reactions. That's their talent. That's their gift. That's what drew them to a sport where this particular gift is significant, enabled them to progress pretty fast in the early weeks and months, and is ultimately a very large part of the explanation for why they reached the top. And I have to confess that I bought into this argument for quite a long time. A journalist who came to watch me play in the US Open in the early 1990s wrote in a national newspaper, Matthew Side has reaction speeds at the outer limits of human capability. And I, and I cut it out and kept it by my bed. <laughs> Anytime I was feeling slightly gloomy, i would take a quick look. But I was disabused of this notion when I had a game of tennis, not table tennis, tennis, with a chap called Michael stieg Now stieg as some of the older people here will know, is a former Wimbledon champion, beat Boris Becker in the final. And I was interviewing him for the Times, and my editor said, look, it might be rather fun, Matthew, if instead of going along with the dictaphone and interviewing stieg in the conventional way, you're an ex-sportsman, take a racket along, have a game, have a chat across the net, and get the information that way. These are the kinds of ideas that features editors have all the time. It's, re- it's really quite... So anyway, I take my racket along, having a game with Shtick, having a chat, getting the info, so in journalistic terms, a success, but I'm also getting ever so slightly bored because it's kind of jocular and conversational, and I wanted to feel the full force of his game. So I said, Michael, um, you, you may be unaware of this, but I'm also an internationally acclaimed sportsman. Uh, um, LAUGHTER <laughs> he said, uh, Matthew, I've never heard of you, which was slightly irritating. <laughs> slightly irritating. And I said, Look, if you go to the other end of the court and serve as fast as you can, I will be able to return the ball. Utterly convinced that with the super fast reactions that had propelled me to the top of world table tennis, returning a serve in tennis is going to be pretty straightforward. After all, the gap between two players in table tennis is nine feet, which is slightly less long than the length of this table. The gap between two players in tennis is roughly the distance in horizontal terms between me and the people right at the back of this room. So even though they hit the ball as hard in tennis as in table tennis, over 100 miles an hour, you have six times as long in which to react. So I'm not an idiot. I don't think I'm going to hit a winner, but I think I'm going to get racket on ball and keep it in play. In fact, I'm sure I'm going to. So Shtick starts warming up. And the atmosphere in the, uh, in the Harbour Club in Chelsea became ever so slightly tense. Um, Jeff from the Sunday Telegraph said, Matthew, this, this might prove to be rather embarrassing. I said, Jeff, you've obviously never seen me play international table tennis, <laughs> all, all, all the concern wouldn't arise. So anyway, shtick is down the other end of the court, and I crouched down, coiled like a spring. And he bounces the ball, looked slightly archly across the net, threw the ball up into the air, launched into a service action. And the ball came over the net, hit the court on my side, hit the wall behind me, and I hadn't moved a muscle. I, hadn't even, I didn't even twitch, I just heard this little clap of air as the wall went, went past my ear. A dull thud as it hit the curtain. And it's, I don't know what it's like with you guys, but it's characteristic of the arrogance of a lot of top sports people. I remember thinking, hmm, I must have blinked at just the wrong moment. So I said, I said do it again. He said, four straight aces, came to the net, gave me a high five. He was giggling, uh, slightly annoyingly, and said I slowed the last one down. So deeply embarrassing but this is really the point of a slightly overlong anecdote. Isn't it also paradoxical? If speed in sport or speed in business decision-making or speed in rapid-fire chess is about the thing we conventionally think that it's about, that commentators insinuate that it's about, namely an innate gift that has been bestowed upon the chosen few that confers and preordains their greatness, but is denied to others, meaning they'll only ever wallow in mediocrity. How as a top-table tennis player can I react to a smash kill in the blink of an eye? But when returning a serve in tennis was seven times as long, I don't move at all. And to find an answer to that question whilst um, doing my research, I went to Liverpool John Walls University and the world leader in perceptual expertise in sport, a guy called Professor Mark Williams. And he hooked me up to motion sensors on my feet and lower body, he put an eye-tracking monitor on my eyes, And then he had a big screen of a life-size opponent. And he had that opponent serve a tennis ball at me. So just as against Shtick, I get down ready to return the serve. Professor Williams pressed play. The ball goes up into the air. And just at the moment the racket head made contact with the ball, Professor Williams pressed pause. And he said, I already know why you are unable to return Shtick's serve. I said, well, how do you know that? And he said, because the eye-tracking monitor revealed that you were looking in the wrong place. He said, you were looking at the ball as it went up into the air and came down onto the racket head. Which, in all honesty, I thought was a logical place to be looking. (laughs) But top tennis players are not looking at the ball. They're looking at the upper body of the opponent, what's sometimes called the postural orientation, the way the hips relate to the waist, the direction of the shoulder and the lower part of the arm. And depending on that dynamic pattern, they can anticipate where the ball is going and the motion sensors are picking expert tennis players moving into the future path of the ball early. So having heard this explanation, I said, replay the tape and I shall look at the postural orientation. (laughs) But it didn't help me for a simple but actually profound reason. There are lots of different postural orientations, subtly different ways that the relevant parts of the body relate to each other that provide usable information about where the ball's going to go, but which I couldn't make sense of. So it raises a question, what is it about you know, Andy Murray and the Williams sisters and Martina and Navratilova that enable them to make sense of the complexity in their domain? Well, it won't surprise you to hear, given this build-up, that it has nothing to do with innate reactions. If you test top tennis players on a neutral test of reactions, where a red light goes on and you have to press a button as fast as possible, they're no faster on average than the average person in this room. Not to do with superior eyesight either. How often do you hear commentators say that? Great eyes. Wonderful eyes. Not to do with their eyes. What it's to do with, I submit to you, it's not weeks or months, but years of purposeful practice, where they slowly and incrementally build up the cognitive repertoire that enables them to make sense of complexity. In conceptual terms, it's very similar to a good doctor or radiologist looking at a scan, an X-ray. I hope no one's had to have a scan recently. But if you're standing alongside a consultant radiologist, it is truly extraordinary how much information they can extract from an image that to your eye looks hazy and ambiguous and confused. That's not because of better eyesight. It's not because of superior abstract reasoning that might be picked up on standard parts of an IQ test, I suggest to you, but years of relatively high-quality practice. The quality of the practice in healthcare isn't high enough. It's an argument I make in black-box thinking but it nevertheless reveals that these people aren't born with a gift it is to do with culture, environment and mindset as well now I could go on but I just want to say that the way we conceptualise success the way we conceptualise success and I alluded to this earlier radically shapes the way we behave I just want to draw a distinction between people over here who say you know what success is about having the gift in fact you can give a questionnaire to find how people conceptualize success and broadly speaking you get the people over here who say you know what it's about having talent and aptitude don't delude yourself there's no getting away from that over here you get a different kind of an answer where people say well talent isn't irrelevant but the dominant feature of success is hard work application and a willingness to learn from one's mistakes and what's fascinating is that depending on where you sit on this spectrum, in the answer to this one question, it predicts radically different types of behaviour in all of the cohorts that it's been studied in, primary school children, graduates, NASA systems engineers, even Premier League footballers. Let me just talk through how the behaviours diverge. Suppose I'm over here, as so many younger and older people are, and I think that my success in my job, my relationships or in some other activity, is about having the gift. Moreover, let's say that I think I've got the gift. You may know some young people who think thinking exactly that way about success. But in those psychological circumstances, why bother to work hard? Am I not just going to get to the top buoyed up on my innate brilliance, my genius? This I su- suggest to you is an archetypal problem in Premier League football academies, where young people work hard to get into the academy. They always have to, because football is a globally competitive meritocracy. But once they're there, something weird happens. They take their foot off the gas. The coaches blame a lack of hunger or desire. The point that I'm making this evening is this is a manifestation of a belief. The belief that to be a great footballer, you need loads of talent. And if I'm in the Arsenal Academy, I must be super talented. So I don't need to work hard. And they don't make the transition into first-team football. What's worse in this mindset is people come to worship effortless performance. If I can do something without trying, that shows that I'm super talented. But think about what that means for an individual. Think about what it means for a culture. If the very process through which they unlock their potential is something they're slightly embarrassed about. It's not just true in schools and football league academies, but also in big corporate institutions as well. But let me flip it briefly. Suppose I'm over here and I think talent's very important, but instead of thinking I've got lots of talent, I fear I have insufficient talent. This, I suggest, is a very significant cultural problem in British state schools. where you hear young people saying things of this kind, I don't have a brain for numbers. Not the kind of person who could learn a second language. Don't have the reaction speed for table tennis. Think about what that means in behavioural terms, because a young person has inferred that they don't have the right kind of brain, because they're slightly worse than some relevant peer group at a particular point in time, but if if they don't have the right kind of brain today, if they don't have the talent, they don't have it tomorrow, or next week, or next month. In other words, the very belief undermines the motivation and the resilience that is at the cornerstone of unlocking one's potential. Could go on about that for a while, but let me just contrast it with the mindset over here. Over here, if somebody is failing over here, that's pretty devastating over there, isn't it? Good evidence I lack talent, probably a wise move to try something else. Over here, failure by definition is a temporary phenomenon because one believes in one's potential for growth. The way one responds to challenges is fundamentally different. Interestingly, people over here are much more open about their weaknesses because they know that they can get feedback and advice and overcome that weakness and grow. People over here feel in control of the narrative of their own development And so the strategies they deploy are aimed at improving continuously over time. Over here, people are much more worried about admitting to their weaknesses because they're worried they'll be seen as untalented. Now, I want to move on to some of the arguments I make in black box thinking because I think that this dichotomy unlocks many of the broad trends in human history and in the institutions we see in the world today. And I want to just draw the contrast at the beginning between two safety-critical industries, aviation and healthcare. I want to argue that aviation has a learning culture, a growth culture. When pilots have a near-miss event, just miss another aeroplane, or if they've been flying at the wrong altitude, they file a report That report is analysed along with all the others that have been filed, and through statistical analysis they reform the procedures in the system to prevent an accident before it's even happened. That's a learning culture. They're looking for marginal gains, they're looking to improve, they're looking to learn from their mistakes. Think of the most dramatic mistakes of all, those that lead to accidents. All planes are equipped with two indestructible black boxes, one of which records information sent to the electronic computers, the other which records ambient sounds in the cockpit, so you can hear what the pilot and the co-pilot were saying to each other in the build-up to the accident. By deconstructing what went wrong, again, you can reform the procedures, the way that the pilot and the co-pilot interact with each other, the ergonomic design of the cockpit. You can reform the way that the autopilot operates. In fact, many of the most seminal innovations in aviation safety have emerged from the rubble of real-world accidents, checklists from crashes in the 1930s, ergonomic design from the accidents of B-17 bombers in the late 1940s. At the time, these seemed inexplicable, but they commissioned a psychologist from Yale University to have a look at what was going wrong, and he realised that the switch that was controlling the flaps and the switch that was controlling the landing gear were side by side and they were identical. Now, you ought to be able to choose which switch to press, but under the pressure of a difficult landing, they were making mistakes. And so he proposed to attach a small wheel, a rubber wheel to one of the switches and a small flap shape to the other. They now had an intuitive meaning, easily identified under pressure, and accidents of that kind vanished overnight. That is the power of learning from failure. And as I say, United Airlines 173, a tragic accident in the late 1970s. It led to crew resource management, the division of responsibilities between pilot and co-pilot, clarifying ambiguity in the expressions that are used under pressure of time. All of these things emerged from the violation of expectation that is represented by an accident if that makes sense. It's an incredibly powerful way to learn. But do we want to admit to our mistakes? If our ego is on the line, our reputation, think about healthcare. And if there are any doctors in the room, please bear with me just for a couple of minutes. I want to argue not that This is a description of all doctors, all nurses and all clinicians because many do heroic jobs under very difficult circumstances. This is my indictment of the prevailing culture, where senior doctors and surgeons in particular, these are people with knighthoods often, with letters after their name, with certificates, with expensive educations. And if you say you have a weakness, a gap in your knowledge, you made a mistake during an operation, They get defensive. This is a threat to their reputation. There's also the threat of possible litigation. So when things go wrong in operating theatres, and this is a very well studied aspect of healthcare sociology, doctors tend to use a whole range of euphemisms to cloak this mistake rather than to learn from it. It was one of those things. There were complications. We did everything we could. It was a unique case. Rather than confronting that event head on, having independent investigation to surface the learning opportunities, and it's because of this that preventable medical error, let me just repeat the first word in that sentence, preventable medical error is the third biggest killer after cancer and heart disease. It kills way more people than traffic accidents. It's the equivalent in the United States alone of two jumbo jets falling out of the sky every single day. And the reason is we're not having open reporting. We're not learning from our mistakes. If somebody's prescribed the wrong drug, it may be because of confusing labelling. We need that information to create the reforms. Now, I want to argue that this dichotomy unlocks so much about human history. Think about... I'm ad-libbing a bit here, but think about the period between the Greeks and the scientific revolution triggered by Francis Bacon and Galileo. For many, many centuries, the idea was, we've got the truth. We've got the truth. Partly, we believe in what Aristotle told us, one of the great authorities, and also the teachings of the church. And so any information that contradicted that was seen as threatening, sacrilegious, When Galileo asked scholars to look through his telescope to verify information that would show that the Earth moved, they refused to look. They didn't want the information that their model was wrong. And therefore, they were denied the opportunity to reform the model and therefore create the innovation that we need in science. Science is a method and a mindset. Questioning, continual improvement. Pseudo-science is over here. And I want to submit to you tonight that if we want to create institutions that grow, we need to have this mindset over here. And before sort of handing over, let me just talk to you a little bit about something called marginal gains. Marginal gains. Have many people heard of that concept? It's the idea that has been deployed by Sir Dave Brailsford, who is the general manager of Team Sky, formerly the performance director of British Cycling, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, our cyclists were also rans. You know, people on the continent said, you know, these Brits, they can't cycle to save their lives. We were the laughing stock. But then we had a coach who came in and employed a method. Deconstructed the objective of winning cycling races into all of its component parts. Looked at where the weaknesses lie and then created small reforms that created marginal gains, the accumulation of which transformed a team of also-rans into the most envied sporting operation on the planet. The aerodynamic design of the bike was tested in wind tunnels, a marginal gain. They started using antibacterial hand gel to cut down on the risk of infection, a marginal gain. At the Tour de France, they uh, transport the mattresses from hotel to hotel to improve on sleep quality. A marginal gain. They even started to probe untested assumptions like the dynamic interaction between diet, power output and cadence. That's the speed of the feet through the pedals and by probing those assumptions they realized that there were weaknesses that they hadn't surfaced and were able to create more marginal gains. They are now the envy of the world. Or take the Mercedes Formula One team which creates marginal gains through telemetry, through investigating the weaknesses and their assumptions to do with the pit stop, the engine and the Mercedes Formula One team, again, is the envy of the Formula One world. Seems to me that that questioning mindset, which is so prevalent in our most successful sporting institutions, is not in operation in our social and political institutions. Think about our hospitals, local authorities. If instead of defending the status quo, they were looking for continual improvements. Think about the revolution that could happen if all of these unexploited marginal gains were exploited and were allowed to accumulate. I could go on. But let me... um let me just bring it round and, and, and finish with, with a personal story. D- did I mention at any stage that I was the British table tennis number one? Did that, <laughs> did that crop up? Now, <laughs> when I became the British table tennis number one for the first time, now I have to confess, table tennis is not the biggest sport in the country. There are 30,000 people who pay a subscription to the governing body and about a million people who play uh, table tennis recreationally. So it's not huge, but it's not that small either. But more than half of the top players in the country when I became England number one didn't just come from the same town as me, or the same suburb, but from the same street. (laughs) Silverdale Road in Reading. Which is where my parents, who are here tonight, still live. So I can't criticise it. Um, (laughs) Is there anyone from Reading, by the way, other than my mum and dad? So Silverdale Road is a pretty anonymous uh, street. And I knew enough about um, population genetics uh, as a teenager to realise that there hadn't been a genetic mutation <laughs> that had hit Silverdale Road and eluded the surrounding streets. And you know, we weren't good because we shared the same genes, unless my dad was doing something I'm unaware of. Which uh, <laughs> I've, got <to> t- <laughs> I've got to tell you, the first speech I gave after the publication of my earlier book. I was talking about Silverdale Road and saying, you know, the success of this street wasn't about jeans. And it was to an investment bank. And somebody in the front row shouted out, what if your dad was sleeping around? <laughs> and it threw me for half an hour. I, was, I, I, was, I got through the speech, but I was walking around going, oh, my God, is that what it was? And David Norwood looks a little bit like my brother. And then I, then I realised we hadn't moved to Silverdale, Silverdale Road till I was four. So that couldn't have been the explanation. And of course it's not about that, it's about the right culture. Let me just reiterate, talent isn't irrelevant, but think of the bigger picture. We had the best coach in the country who taught at the school adjacent to Silverdale Road. He equipped us with the right mindset, the willingness to clock up meaningful practice and not to be deterred by making mistakes and having occasional failures. But check this out. The only 24-hour-a-day table tennis club in the whole of the south of England was just near our street, so we clocked up all of that meaningful practice, and we all had a set of keys. That was part of the reason for how we got so good. There was variation, it's worth pointing out. You know, not all of us became national champion, although a lot of us did. You know, Karen Witt, Andy Wellman, my older brother, Paul Beck, Keith Hodder. I remember going with a BBC TV crew along the street, and I was going, yeah, national champion, national... And they thought I was making it up. But there were others who were county players. I mean, some of them only made the club team. So there's individual variation. Could some of that be explained by differential genetics? Yes, I'm sure it can. But the cohort, the population, that wasn't about differential genetics. That was about the power of the right culture and the right mindset. Think about other concentrations of success in the world today. Spartak Moscow Tennis Club, more top 20 female tennis players in the whole of the United States. And just think again of the contrast between aviation and healthcare. Is aviation a more successful safety-critical industry because the pilots and the air accident investigation branch have higher IQs than the doctors and the surgeons? That's not the reason. It's because of the method The scientific revolution didn't happen because we evolved a more superior brain. It was because of a method. That's the method we need to apply today to our social institutions, to our political institutions, and to our own lives. And just one final point before opening for questions. Think about what this would mean in educational terms. Think about our young children who, when they answer a question at school, and they get it right, they get a big tick. If they get it wrong, it's underlined in red. The insinuation we give to them that there's a body of knowledge that they are going to absorb, and if they apply it, they will always get the right answers. That's not the way the world works. We have to engage with the world, experiment, see where we're going wrong, and adapt. James Dyson's a great example here. You know, People think, my goodness, what an amazing man to have created, if you like the cyclone. Uh, vacuum cleaner (laughs) I know there's somebody in the audience who doesn't but the extraordinary thing Um, how did he do it well he had the idea for a cyclone by going into a sawmill and they cut and planed the wood and the dust was going up into this ducting and then this unusual shaped thing at the top and the dust wasn't coming out so he thought my goodness could this be replicated in a conventional vacuum cleaner and you know the engineering proposition of a conventional vacuum cleaner you have a motor And a vacuum, and it goes into a bag which has holes in it, which are small enough to let the air out, but big uh, big enough to let the air out, but small enough to trap the dust. Well, he said, why not get rid of the bag altogether? But when he first created the cyclone, dust was escaping out of the top. So he changed the dimensions and he handwrote the result into his exercise book in the workshop that he had in the back garden. And then he did it again and again and again. And after 5,126 failed prototypes, he found the cyclone dimensions that made him his fortune. That is a perfect metaphor for creative innovation in the world today. The willingness to test, to experiment, to occasionally break the rules in order to reform them. And that's the idea that I'd like to leave you with tonight and hand over to Vicky. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Matthew. Um, So I think I'm going to start off uh, with a few questions for you. Um, So as you were talking there, when you were talking particularly about the, the arrogance of the sports star, that reminded me of the world I work in, which is technology, and I think it's perhaps visible there maybe more than anywhere else now where we worship these individuals for their talents. You know, Mark Zuckerberg made Facebook just like that because he's brilliant. Why do you think that myth still persists in these very new fields? Or is Zuckerberg an exception, perhaps?
1: I think the reason is because of a basic perceptual distortion. And I sort of alluded to it in the speech, that we see the performance. We see the performance. What we often are unaware of is the process that led to its construction. So I talked about Dyson, 5126 failed prototypes. Forgive me for using David Beckham as an example. David Beckham, great free kick taker. And I remember going to interviewing, to interview him in Paris, the first time I really got to know him well. And he said that he had been told in the press conference that he had um, the ability to take free kicks encoded in his DNA. And he, 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 he laughed at this because the journalist hadn't seen what he had gone through. When he first started doing keep-me-ups in his back garden in a small house in East London, he could only do three or four but he practised every day, four or five hours, and after three years, he got up to 2003. Then he went to the local park and started practising his free kick, iterating, and iterating the technique in order to iron out the deficiencies and so improve over time. It seems to me that when you look at science, even, you know we look at great theories, but what we don't tend to learn at school, for obvious reasons, are all of the failed theories that were the necessary precursors Science, as Karl Popper, the great philosopher, said, is a history of failure. But that is precisely why it is a successful institution. The willingness to exploit and learn from those failures in the um, quest for improvement, in the case of science, more explanatory and richer, more predictive theories.
2: So why is it then, you think, that what is it that stops people from following that route? Obviously, you mentioned healthcare and there's many other industries and fields where this seems to be institutionally ingrained that people should be embarrassed about their mistakes, they should try and cover them up. You know, individuals don't want to admit it, their institutions don't want to admit it. What's, what's the problem, what's stopping us?
1: Because I don't think we're fully aware of the rich story of how success really happens. Um, And I also think that we're fighting against a talent-obsessed culture. I mean, Think about something like um, the X Factor. That acquaints young people with the idea of overnight success, instant gratification. That's not the way success happens in the real world, in mathematics, in sport, in science, in aviation. And yet, if young people think success can happen instantly, and they try playing the violin for the first time, and they're not a virtuoso, they're going to infer they're not cut out for it, and so they're going to give up. In other words, the very notion of instant success undermines the resilience that you saw in Dyson, in Brailsford, in Beckham, and in great scientists. And therefore, people don't persist and learn and develop over time.
2: So do you perhaps have some practical tips? Is this something that you apply to your own life? What can, what can people do?
1: Yeah, actually, I think there's two things. I mean, firstly, I think it's really important to... Rec- I mean, there's a big quid pro quo here, which is we can improve and excel if we're prepared to commit to it. And it is psychologically difficult to confront our mistakes and learn from them. Um, I also think the language, I mean, for, for employers and parents, the language we use is very important. Praising people for talent tends to push them towards the fixed mindset. Praising for effort, for the process, that tends to push people towards the growth mindset. So you imagine someone's done a drawing and you say, Are you the next Picasso or what? That's talent based praise. Somebody's thinking, well, I'd better not try drawing anything too difficult, or they might see I'm no Picasso. Or they're going to think, well, yes, I'm super talented, but as soon as they fail, they're going to fall apart. Wasn't this the, the mistake in the educational establishment in the 1970s, caricaturing a little, that we thought if we could give children easy success experiences, a low bar, praise them lavishly for their talent, equip them with huge self-confidence, they'll change the world. Why didn't that work? It didn't work because the first time they hit failure, they thought, my goodness, I wasn't talented after all. And the walls of their world would come crumbling down. Self confidence that isn't robust to failure is not worth having. Whereas young people who are praised for effort, you know, wow, you work really hard. What do they think if they want to do an even better drawing? Work harder. Or if you praise the way the colours fit together, if they want to do a better painting, I need to make them fit together in a more sophisticated way. So with the praise terms, we need, you know, and the vocabulary we use, we need to align people with the actual process of learning, development, and fronting up to mistakes, which they have to go on in order to fulfil their potential. If that makes sense.
2: Great. Um, so yes, so I've had a look at your new book, and obviously, the, one of the kind of prevailing messages in it, obviously put a, a bit more sophisticated than this, but it's, you know, learning from your mistakes. It's a, a, an old saying. Um, are there any exceptions to that rule? You mentioned, you know, even a plane crash, it seems like a very big mistake to make, but it's still valuable because you you can learn it. Are there exceptions? Are there times when screwing up is just screwing up?
1: <laughs> just, I'm sure there are times when screwing up is screwing up. But I think if... Think of it like this. If we're confronted with a complex world, a world that we are not capable as yet of fully understanding, the social world, the natural world, the political world, when we're at the frontiers of our knowledge, mistakes and failures are violations of our expectations, violations of our models, of our procedures, of our theories. And therefore, they are absolutely rich in their learning opportunities. That's why they're so significant. If one makes the same mistake over and over again, one's not learning from them. They're really redundant mistakes. You know, Popper said, true ignorance is not the absence of knowledge, it's the refusal to acquire it. Think of our politicians. <laughs> I mean, Think of it for a moment. You know, it's so interesting to talk to policy analysts who get some of this material because the politicians don't want to measure their policies because they're worried they might be found out. And if they do, they will spin the data even as they release it, so no one think they made a mistake. In other words, the gap between expectation and what happened is not being systematically narrowed, but spun. Well, think about economics. And I don't I mean, I've studied economics at university, but where you will get economists making theoretical predictions that are violated by the world, and instead of enriching their assumptions, they'll spin. They'll come up with very sophisticated ex-post rationalizations that mean they never have to change their theoretical assumptions. Mm-hmm. Now, Professor Sir Terry Burns, not an economist that maybe those who are interested in the field will agree with, but he said to me that the number of times that economists change their theoretical assumptions from monetarism to Keynesianism or to neo-Keynesianism or new classicalism is about the same number as Muslims converting to Christianity. That I would suggest. It's one of the reasons why economics is not advancing. The intellectual and creative energy of our greatest economic thinkers are devoted to protecting their reputations rather than advancing our understanding of the economic world.
2: Great, okay. So I'm sure we've got lots of questions from our audience. Um, Okay, so who have we got first? This gentleman right up front here. Hi. Um, I think we can infer from your talk that In science, we also have a problem sort of identifying potential young people. So what would you say are the signs of greatness in a young person and how long can we let them fail?
1: Uh, Young scientists? Sure. You know, um, as I said, I think there is some role for genetic inheritance and talent in explaining differential outcomes. But by and large, it's very interesting that those who look as if they're standing out from their peers at a young age tend not to achieve later in life. Very well studied phenomenon. The child prodigies who don't tend to make it. And I think this is because of two different reasons. One, it's a slightly independent point, is that child prodigies have often been pushed too hard by their parents. So instead of doing the activity because they really care about it from the inside, they're doing it to please a parent or coach. That's too big a psychological contradiction, and they burn out. It's very, very important that if somebody wants to do something in the long term, they internalise the motivation. They're passionate about it. and There's very good research coming out of Stanford that I referred to in black box thinking about how that process happens and how inspiration can be triggered. Um, But the other reason, I think, is because often child prodigies, they're told they're talented so often, and that they're brilliant, and that their success is preordained that as soon as they have the difficulties and challenges and failures that are an inevitable part of learning, they tend to fizzle away. And so I would say that what we really want to do is equip all of our young people with the right kind of mindset, get them engaged with something they're passionate about, and we'll be very surprised, our cultural expectations around even the, the average person, how good they will get are far too low. Can I just unpack that with one? Can I do a quick experiment? Who's up for this? Hang on, I can't, let's put the glasses <laughs> on. If, has anyone heard of the digit span task? This is a, uh, the kind of classic test of memory. Um, and I'm going to give it to you in the room today. Because we, aren't we very fixed in our thinking about memory? Some people say, yeah, I've got a brilliant memory. And others, oh, I can't remember a friend's telephone number. So I'm going to give you the digit span task. I'm going to read a list of random digits, one after the other. And I want you to remember them. And I invite you to read them back to me. There's a look of total horror. <laughs> Suddenly, the atmosphere changed. They're kind of quite liking me for a while. OK, so no writing this down, by the way. Are you ready? OK, 9, 2, 3, 8, 1, 7, 0, 4, Six, nine, zero, two. Okay. Anyone who didn't write that down, want to? So how many digits? That's twelve digits. Anyone want to have a crack at that? Hang on. We got uh, no. Somebody. Yes. Go on. Go on. Was that you, Ben, or who? Do you want to have a go? Shout, shout loud. Uh, now I've been distracted. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Does anyone think they've got more?
1: Good, that's eight. Are you struggling with the next one? Round of applause. <laughs> Can I just say that the okay? So it's something, let's have one other person having a go. Remember, this is a self-selecting group who know what they're doing here. Yes.
3: Nine
2: two
1: three eight one seven zero four six zero two. Almost. <laughs> that was. Um, nine so you got very very close you just missed one number out actually can I just say the reason I'm doing this is that there will be a Gaussian distribution a bell-shaped distribution in the room you know what I mean heard of the bell-shaped distribution the average in the room would be five there'll be some who are below average but three or four you get the talented ones (laughs) who get eight nine or ten and you may think that if everyone went away and practised, you know, the no-hopers would sort of chug along and get a little bit better. You know They've got no predisposition. The super-talented ones would race away. Or at the very least, you might think that the gap would remain in place. But what's interesting are two things. Firstly, one's position on the distribution is not very predictive of how good you get. It's to do with how long you practise. And the second thing is how good the average person gets. So Anders Ericsson took somebody called Stephen who was slightly below average and they trained for a few months and they kept going through random digits for as long as they could get up to. How good do you think he got? This guy, Stephen, below average, after a few months of practice and learning from his mistakes. 20? Any advances on 20? 30? 30? 30? Any advances on 30? 50. Fit, well, I t- yeah. he, got, <laughs> he got up to 81. But he, he had to get on with his life, so they found somebody, <laughs> they found somebody else who practiced even longer and got up to 120 with no evidence they'd stopped improving. Erickson, who for those who are interested studied under Herbert Simon, one of the great Nobel Prize winners and father of information theory, winner of the Nobel Prize in economics, said there no, seem to be no limits to which ordinary people can improve their memory skill with practice. If you were to watch this guy come in and do 80 or 120, you'd think, that guy's got something I lack. Extraordinary talent. We haven't seen the process for which they developed that mastery. That's the perceptual illusion in the world today. You know, we see great films and fly an astonishingly safe aircraft. And, and so that's a very overlong answer to the first question. So <laughs> let me, let's have another
2: one. Yes, we do have time for more questions still. Um, take one from up here. Hi. Um, I was also going to ask a question about passion, which came up in your previous answer. Um, As the mother of a very able musician, she's 14, uh, she gets absolutely no enjoyment from playing. We're in a position now where we think, we'll just let that go. So I'm very interested to know, you mentioned how inspiration can be triggered. Mm. Is there any way to engender a passion if it's not there?
1: Thank you. So, most of the, for what it's worth, most of the research is being done out of Stanford by a, a very good young psychologist called Greg Walton. And there's a very good popularisation on this, and I do refer to some of this research in black box thinking. But I would just invite you to think about the things that you're passionate about. You know, when it comes to equipping people with tenacity and resilience, there are very clear methods about how to get people there. But when you think about your own passions, They're often very idiosyncratic. Consider, I spent 25 years playing (laughs) ping-pong. Hitting a plastic ball over the net. And I used to look at the world rankings and think, my goodness, I've gone up three places. This is marvellous. Now, you may say, what a silly way to spend a life. But people do get very passionate about different things. And I think, for what it's worth... That the the things that people tend to be passionate about are, are things. This is the sort of broad picture stuff, if I may say, just at the beginning. Things that have some element of creativity, where they have some element of autonomy, don't feel they're being overcoached, and where they can track their growing mastery over time. Those are the things people. But even within the context of those wider contours, it's still very idiosyncratic. Um, so I'd suggest you know look at some of the work on spontaneous influence events. Slight mouthful. But also, if over a long period of time, your daughter is showing no real passion and interest in music, you know, at some point it is worth saying, you know what, this is not her bag. And I can't force her to be passionate about the things that I am passionate about, because these things can be quite individualistic. Um, let me just say that James Dyson, he's made £3,000 million. And when I went to interview him and, and said, what do you most look forward to doing? He said, creating new prototypes. He said, 5,126, that's just the beginning. He talked about the separation efficiency of the airflow as if it was me talking about a forehand topspin. He loved it. Do you know what I mean? He was mad about it. You know, think about great scientists. You know, I bet Richard Dawkins has spoken in this very lecture theatre. Look at the passion when he talks about evolutionary biology. You know, Billie Jean King once said, do you ever get bored of tennis? And she said, I've never seen two balls crossing the net in the same way. The fascination is part of the way that we grow and get better over time. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Okay, and we have one at the back over on this side.
1: I'm waiting for the question from the surgeon in the room.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You made a very good point about the contrast between aviation and health. And I think it's interesting that it's taken so long for checklists in the cockpit moved move to checklists in the operating theatre and many lives are being saved. But my main question is really, do you think the mistakes actually have to be made in order to learn from them? I'm thinking about mistakes that can be sort of predicted. If you look hmm. at the Malaysian airline crash, for example, the, the plane's disappeared. It wouldn't have taken a genius to think, if this plane goes, we won't be able to find the black box to find what's gone wrong with it. So I'm wondering whether
1: this attitude towards learning from mistakes can also encourage people to learn from possible
0: mistakes and change their attitudes.
1: Yeah, That's very important. So in safety-critical industries, we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to make mistakes in airlines. We want to be planning. We want to use simulators as much as possible to tease out the implications of the procedures that we want to adopt before we put it into real-world events. That's one of the reasons why we practice in sport. So instead of failing on the grand stage, you know, ice dancers will fall over in practice, slowly build up their repertoire so that they can deliver on the big stage. That's absolutely right. But this is the crucial point. With maximum planning, with huge foresight, of the most intelligent people in the world, there will nevertheless be failures. And the reason for that is complexity. The world is more complex than our capacity to understand it. And therefore, we have to systematically narrow the gap between the way we currently understand the world and the way the world really is. That is science. We want to use planning. We want to make sure we test small before we go big. All of those things are vital, but it is not a substitute from learning from real-world failure. These are two sides of the same coin. And you're absolutely right. You can learn from your successes too. Thank you.
2: All right. okay, and we've got lots of hands. There's one just, just here near our microphone.
3: I'm not a surgeon. Um, <laughs> good to know. But I, I have a small company and we're expanding into the US right now and we second-guess ourselves at every step because litigation is such a huge issue mm-hmm. that we rather cut back on what we offer than expose ourselves, which is totally silly I'm, I'm in the golf industry. Um, but it's, it's outright dangerous if you get into trouble and you end up, completely financially ruined. Now, if I was a surgeon, not just in the US, but anywhere, I think I would think twice. And I'm normally, I'm I'm a big fan of your theory of, of learning from mistakes and being open. It's the only way to learn. But if every time I admit a mistake, I might end up in jail or financially ruined, and my career is ruined, because it's personal for people. It's hugely personal when your surgeon makes a mistake on you, which means people do not allow mistakes, I think. I think there's an mm. expectation that it just cannot happen. If it does, somebody has to be blamed. We have this blame culture. So I was just wondering, your with the airline industry is interesting, um, if there's any chance to reform the health industry in that respect without addressing litigation issues?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a really interesting question. I do think there need to be reforms to tort law. But let me just say this. When Virginia Mason Healthcare System introduced a set of procedures of open reporting, so the clinicians were empowered, if they saw something they were worried about, to file a report in the same way that they do in aviation very enlightened, so it had mechanisms of self-correction in learning of the type that I've been talking about during the course of this evening, (laughs) no one filed any reports. They were so worried that the anonymization process wouldn't actually be robust and they might get hammered for it, they didn't report any mistakes. It was only when they changed the culture that the mistakes started to be reported and people were surprised to find, instead of getting hammered for being open about their honest mistakes, They were praised. Now patient safety alerts flow in. And here's the the key point about litigation. With open and honest reporting, Virginia Mason has seen a 75% reduction in insurance liability premiums. That isn't a one-off. That has been true in hospitals across the United States. That's what we need in the NHS. We have the system. We don't yet have the culture. And we don't have independent investigation until we get all those things together. And by the way, you're right about blame. You know, if we hammer somebody over the head, say, say let's take the pilots in those B-17s, remember, who are clicking the wrong switch. You know, the one linked to the flaps and the other to the landing gear. We're firing this person. What an idiot. How could they not picked the right button you can imagine the front page of of a newspaper the following day idiotic pilot flicks the wrong switch how could they do that they've been trained that's madness but what actually happened the investigators put themselves in the high pressure intensity that the pilots themselves faced And realise that when you're dealing with a hundred other things and you're coming into land and there's fog and there's wind and there's all sorts of other things going on, it's easy to do the wrong thing. Separating out the learning from the blame. That's how you get... And the problem is blame. If you take the baby P case, which I go into great detail in the book, a young child died. A young child died. That is a tragedy. The very next day, after the court case came to the end, who did the press go after? They went after the head of social services before an investigation had even happened. They hammered them. This woman, Sharon Shoesmith, contemplated suicide. So did the caseworker on the uh, baby P case, Maria Ward. What do you think happened the next year? What do you think happened to the vital information that is so important to create openness in learning with children? It got buried deeper underground. Clinicians became paranoid about admitting to anything in case it came back to bite them. The paper trails got longer, but there was no information. It was just back covering and defensiveness. The following year, the number of children killed at the hands of their parents went up by 25%. And it remained higher for the next three years. These are very deeply um, embedded pathologies in our culture today. The worship of talent, the desire to preemptively blame without understanding what went wrong, a lack of openness, and the ego protection defensiveness that you see in surge. these things are psychologically and culturally deeply interconnected. It's exactly the same in politics, and that's what you know. I'm hoping this book will begin to—you know—if if, if people read it, which is a long <laughs> shot. I know, I'm hoping here—that's what I'm hoping it will begin to break down. Thank you. That's a great question.
2: Um, I can see a, c- a hand up top there do we have a microphone up there or shall we yep we
3: do thank you Um, my question was how do you make this real in the real world how would you be able to simulate failure in a system where you know in companies it's all about performance assessments it's all about success not about failure schools GCSEs exams everything is the focus is on succeeding Mm. So how do you make it real?
1: Do you know, I just think that in order to make it real, we need to get that conceptual change. Instead of seeing mistakes, honest failures, as things that we want to hit people over the head about, we see them as potential learning opportunities. So we get a culture where people are open. You know, on performance reviews, instead of just saying you've been successful, that's fantastic, what about throwing forward? How could we improve in the future? How could we exploit the weaknesses that we currently have in order to get better over time. Um, you know, in the book, I, I've obviously mentioned Dyson already, but Pixar, um, Google, these companies are prepared to experiment to allow their people to take sensible risks and to learn when they do so. And I think it hinges on a conceptual reinterpretation of what error and failure means. You know, this idea of failure being stigmatizing almost morally egregious, goes back a very long way, according to Sidney Decker, the great um, systems analyst, at least to the time of Christ. And, you know, not, I'm not associating it, sorry, let me... Uh, you know, to the to zero, uh, to the year dot. I don't, that wasn't an anti... <laughs> my father's a born-again Christian. I don't want to, in any way, imply that Christ has anything to do with... It. So. <laughs> the year zero. <laughs> so what no so so that's what we need to change. And I think that is what science I mean we're in a great scientific institution here. That's what science does at its best. You know, Karl Popper, who I've mentioned twice already this evening, argued that the hallmark of science is the principle of falsification. Scientists create theories that make testable predictions. So when these predictions fail, it's an opportunity to reform the theory. But imagine if a theory never failed. Now, tell me if I'm being controversial, but the predictions of astrologists are quite vague. (laughs) And therefore, it's very difficult to ever prove to an astrologist that the prediction they've made is a false one. And so they they never have to reform the theory. That is why scientific theories have huge predictive power and have changed the world, and astrological theories haven't. That's the redefinition we need in in our corporates as well.
2: Great, and there's someone else waiting
3: to ask a question up there as well. Have you looked at whether there are certain cultures or demographics or countries in the world where there is more of a culture of failure and that it's accepted? And if you have, have you found that in those places they have more success or less failure in the future?
1: That's a great question. So, interestingly, it varies in quite a significant way, and I'll try and unpack what I mean by that. Let's take entrepreneurship Now that's often regarded, rightly in my opinion, as part of a creative, dynamic, growing economy. People who risk their capital and learn over time and create products that we want to buy. Now I think in the United States they have a very healthy attitude to entrepreneurship. If an entrepreneur fails and the company goes under, they exploit the learning opportunities and will often create another company. Henry Ford bankrupted two companies before coming up with the motor company that changed the world. I would contrast that with Japan, where entrepreneurial failure is deeply stigmatising. It is very rare for a Japanese person who's created a company that's gone under to ever do the same again. They're blamed, they're considered stupid, and therefore I think this is one of the deep reasons for the lack of dynamism in the Japanese economy. But let's draw a contrast between entrepreneurship and mathematics. What happens in mathematics if somebody starts getting answers wrong in America and also in the U.K.? They're written off as, you know, they don't get mathematics. They don't understand it. They're written off as untalented, which is why people tend to give up at maths early because they don't think they've got the right kind of brain. In China and Japan, mathematics is considered to be something that everybody can learn and develop articulacy with by learning from their mistakes and getting better and, and, and sticking at it and getting better over time. And now look at the Pisa League tables. You know, China's number one, Japan's number four, America and the UK are between 28 and 36. I think that's to do with a fundamental different cultural interpretation of failure in regard to that domain. And so I think it varies from place to place, but there are very clear correlations between having a healthy attitude to failure and higher performance. And having an un- unhealthy attitude to failure, and having a lower performance.
2: Okay, we've got a gentleman right in front of me here.
4: Yeah, hi. Um, do you have any ideas of what sort of strategies one might apply to either an individual, or a small company, or a whole industry, to change it from you know to change it into the failure-oriented mode?
1: Yeah, um, I think that a really good model is this one of marginal gains remember when I talked about the cyclists who are able to look at the objective create a clear objective and then look at all of the different components that goes into its completion and it's not just the obvious stuff, I mean the most impressive thing about Brailsford is testing the hidden assumptions I talked a little bit about that relationship between power output, cadence and diet, I mean imagine that They eat different kinds of food, try and control for the other variables, and then see how it affects cadence. Then they'll eat pasta and change the cadence and see how it affects power output. That's That's the complexity of the world. None of the theories we have on nutrition were able to provide answers to these questions. But by testing through controlled experimentation, they learned and learned and learned. I just wonder whether some companies are brilliant at this, absolutely fantastic. But the question is, have we looked at all of our untested assumptions? How can we exploit them to improve over time? And that, I think, depends on the type of company and the type of objective that they're looking to achieve. It can be very highly context-dependent, but I think that method and mindset can be, can be very powerful. Thank you.
2: Uh, and we've got a lady over here in the pink.
0: Um, hi, I- I'm an economist. Um, oh thought no! If I, I thought I'd say that now, For my, uh, I'm not going to defend economics. Uh, do what
1: do you, you think, think about economics in, in terms of? Look, no, I, fa- I, I, I'm I, putting you on the spot. That's no, unfair. No, Go I'm on, ask your ask, question. I, I got Please. the right to ask the question. Yes, um, you do.
0: So, um, my, my question is: um, you've, you've used an explanatory variable, in our terms, quite a few times, um, called culture, to explain differences between the performance of the aviation industry and the performance of the healthcare industry. I think, um, to an economist, we would think of, more often about incentives. What are the incentives that face mm. these people in these different industries? So I wonder if you'd, and I, I particularly want you to th- I particularly wondered if you'd thought about this in the context of financial services industry, mm. and um, issues like hiding, um, you know, opening up different accounts to hide losses on trading accounts and so on. Because so I think a lot of culture, culture is a big black box to me. I'm afraid. And I, I, I think a lot of it is about what kind of system of incentives you set up to reward different kinds of behaviours, because they are very strong motivate That's one thing that economics is right about. Incentives do motivate behaviour.
1: They do. They do. This is about much more than incentives, though. Let me ask you to think about proprietary traders at investment banks. So these are people who gamble the financial institution's own money in order to make a return. Now, the incentive structure there is extremely clear... You want to buy stocks when they're low and sell them when they're high. That way you make money. But what's fascinating is that when you look at even professional traders, this is a particularly big bias with amateur traders, they tend to sell the stocks that have gone up quite quickly. Now, why would they do that? Because they've crystallised the gain. It shows that it was the right decision to buy that stock in the first place, right? If I've bought a stock and I've sold it at a gain, that shows that I was very wise to buy that stock. I haven't made a mistake, so I've crystallised it. But what if that stock was going to go up even more? I've lost all of that additional gain, or as they say in financial services, the additional alpha. But what about the losing stocks? If a stock's gone down and I sell it, that shows that I was very silly to buy it in the first place, because I've just crystallized a loss. So what do, propri- what do prop traders do with their losing stocks? They hold on to them. They hold on to them, hoping that they're going to come back, hoping that they're going to be proved not to have made a mistake after all, and they lose all of this additional money. Even professional stock pickers hold their losing stocks twice as long as their winning stocks, regardless of their future prospects. This is a massive discrepancy that has nothing to do with the incentive structure and everything to do with the way they conceptualise success. They think of success as something that is going to be completely obliterated by making mistakes. And so they can't cut their losses. It's a perfect metaphor for what's happening in healthcare. You're absolutely right. Incentives are highly significant in driving behaviour, but there's a deeper issue of the way we conceptualise the issues upon which the incentive structure is constructed, and that is what—that's uh, really the message of the book. So I agree with you about incentives. You know, I'm a great believer in using incentives to try and, ch- and nudge[s] and all of these things. I think this is a deeper issue that really needs to be addressed, and it is very embedded in the culture. And I know what you mean, it's a black box, in, in a sense, you know, what does that mean? But I think it all hinges on a redefinition of failure, error, and mistakes. But that's a great question, thank you. And sorry for asking about that, that was an unfair question about economics. <laughs> 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 yeah.
2: Okay, and um, we have someone right in front of me again. Um, so... Today's generation is kind of um, based online. We're all obsessed with our phones and everything. So how would you get um, future generations to use black box thinking? And would you enforce that um, through the education system?
1: I would love to see our education system change. You know, I mentioned this in the speech, this idea that we can solve the problems of the world by deploying the knowledge that we already have. Isn't that the mistake? You know, if you're an entrepreneur creating a new business, there's no set of ideas that you can deploy in order to make sure you're definitely going to be successful. We need to test our ideas and adapt them in the light of what we learn in our real-world experiences. But I think young people don't walk around with that conception. And so you can have people who have been successful all the way through school, and as soon as they're confronted, where there are clear answers, it's either a tick or a cross, the real world is more ambiguous. And you have young people who go into the real world and are deeply intimidated by this ambiguity and complexity. That's the change I think we really need to... Does that make We really need to change that in the way young people... You know, Dyson said to me, we need young people who are prepared occasionally to break the rules. Let me make a scientific point briefly, and forgive me if this is, this is a boring point. But even at the level of scientific theoretical advance, this turns out to be deeply significant. We often think of practical technologies emerging from high-level theories, don't we? You've got the boffins at the university, who come up with wonderful new theories, and they are then harnessed by entrepreneurs and technologists in order to create practical technologies. So the idea in the Industrial Revolution was that the ideas of Boyle and Galileo were used to create steam engines and the other things that changed the economic world. Turns out that's not how it happened. Thomas Newcomen knew nothing... Of, of Newton. I mean, he was a lay preacher, barely educated, who tinkered and adjusted and learned in the way that Dyson did with his cyclone and slowly but surely created that crucial machine. That turns out to be true in almost every single, a very large proportion, from architecture to cybernetics, even to the algorithms that are used um, by traders. These are built up through practical learning, failing, adapting, testing, learning, failing. Even Dyson's, you know, when Dyson created this cyclone, one of the first things he did is he went and had a look at what the mathematics said about separation efficiency. And there was a theory by R.G. Dorman, who had spent his life creating a theory that tried to explain the way that dust would respond to different types of spinning air, basically. And he said that you could, redu- you could basically separate dust down to a minimum of what's called 20 microns. Dyson looked at this mathematics, learned from it. So the conceptual understanding is important. What we learn at school is really, really important, that conceptual background. But it wasn't sufficient to give him the answer to the perfect cyclone. And so he iterated and did the practical stuff that they did during the Industrial Revolution. And what do you think happened? He separated dust down to a level of 0.3 of a micron. That's, that's about the size of the dust in tobacco smoke. That's how it happens in the world. It's an interplay between practical developments and experimentation and high-level theories interacting with each other in an upward spiral. And I just think we're t- yeah, I, mean, I just think we're too into the idea that if we get the theoretical knowledge, we're going to be OK. We also need to be engaged in practical learning and doing.
2: Okay, and if we stay in the sense of what we've got a gentleman on the end of the same row.
4: My observation would be that in, in practice, the full cycle is test, fail, learn. Yeah. But then you have to have punishment, remorse, and forgiveness. <laughs> I
1: was, I was agreeing with you until I last let's,
4: let's, let's bring it back to the sporting situation. You know, Justin Gatlin, he served his punishment, but people perceive he hasn't shown remorse and he hasn't been forgiven, so that becomes the issue. And so would it be a correct um, extension of what you're saying, that with your sporting hat on, you know, if people who turned around and who beat you at international tournaments, whatever, and they said, Matthew... I doped the eyeballs, or I did all of these things, but I've learned. <laughs> Would you say, that's fine, John? That's fine, <laughs> Pete? You've learned that's okay? So I'd be curious for your own observations on this sort of remorse and forgiveness. Yes. As the individual in terms of how you deal, but then how society responds, be it that surgeon who kills somebody, that entrepreneur that loses a billion dollars, whatever it might be.
1: So I draw a very important distinction between the surgeon who's genuinely trying to save a life but who fails because of inadequate procedures, insufficient training, and a whole range of other latent deficiencies that can be addressed by systemic reform, on the one hand, and a surgeon who goes into the operating theatre saying, I don't like this guy, I'm going to kill them. Because in the second one, I think you're absolutely right. I'm a believer that we do need a criminal justice system, and those kind of, if you like, moral failings Deeply significant, and I I agree with you, they're very significant in sport at the moment. And there are many deep ironies in sport. You know, I wrote um, the cover for Tea Times 2 this morning about Paula Radcliffe. She's being hammered and we don't even know she was taking drugs. Chris Froome, I went out to follow him on the decisive stage of the Tour de France, and he was being spat at, he had a cup of urine thrown in his face, he was punched as he was cycling up these very difficult mountains. Not because he was guilty, but because of the suspicion of guilt. So I do, you know, I really feel that the moral terrain of sport at the moment is very, very problematic. Um, And I would... you know, my my basic point... i I tell you, this is really the point I'd make on this, is that we should do everything we can to have rigorous anti-doping procedures and to prove guilt wherever we can find it. But if we can't prove guilt, We should give people who are merely under the cloud of suspicion the benefit of the doubt. So for me at the moment, I'm prepared to believe in Radcliffe's innocence. And I'm certainly prepared to believe in Froome's innocence. But once one does have guilt, then you're absolutely right. Punishment should definitely follow. And actually, can I I finish with a... Would it be okay to finish with my biggest failure? Would that be a good way? Why are you all nodding? I mean, that's (laughs) the. So, so can I just say? So, my my the worst experience of my life was was no, darling, it wasn't marrying you. Um, The worst experience of my life was at the Olympic Games in Sydney. So you know, the Olympic Games are every four years. You spend pretty much all of that time obsessing about this hugely important event. And in the sort of two years building up, it looms ever larger in the mind. And then three weeks before, I was quite highly seated. I flew out to the Gold Coast in Australia, and the British Olympic Association paid for sparring partners to come and train with me, whose style mimicked the guy I was playing in my first match. They created a training venue on the Gold Coast with the same floor that I was going to have in the Olympic Stadium. The same level of lighting. The lux was the same. And I'm training away and thinking, my goodness, I'm playing well at the moment. And this is going to be an amazing experience. Could I win a medal? And then, just before I went out to, to play, the venue manager, Neil, said to me, this is going out live on British television. I thought, fantastic, that's even better. And I glanced out into the auditorium and I saw Union Jack's, and this wonderful lighting and I saw people I recognised in the audience and my coach said to me Matthew what happens over the course of the next 45 minutes will determine whether the last four years were a waste of time or not <laughs> now, he says to this day that he was trying to motivate me okay? <laughs> but you can imagine the effect that it had I went out there and I was playing against this German uh, git, no, opponent <laughs> German opponent A nice guy, actually, called Peter. And I was seated to beat him, and he spun the ball, and my first shot missed the table by about two (laughs) metres. You know, do you remember in the build-up to 2012 when people were saying, we've got wonderful athletes, but how are they going to cope on the big day? This will be the one and only time they play in an Olympic Games on home soil. Will they fall apart under the pressure? Do you remember, we were talking about it and debating it all the way up. And when the one show decided to do a feature on what it means to fall apart under pressure, <laughs> they phoned me up and said, Matthew, would you be prepared to come <laughs> and we, uh, so, so, And it was horrendous, it was horrendous. Now, this isn't just about sport though, is it? I mean, who has, who has fallen apart when they've got to give a speech or a presentation at work? You know, all of us can talk, but when it's in front of a group of people and there's pressure, the mouth begins to dry or you've got a big job interview and you've got all of the information but suddenly you can't marshal it, and you can't find it, you can't recall it. Or, you know, it happens on a first date, doesn't it, quite often? Never happened to me, but anyway, so there we... (laughs) Now, so I fell apart, and i lost within about 45 minutes to Peter Franz. And I became fascinated in why it happened. What is going on when we choke and fall apart? Have you heard that expression, Choking. And it turns out that this is actually quite a well-studied aspect of performance psychology. And broadly speaking, you know, when you send out questionnaires, and this was done to our Olympians before 2012, to find out what's going on in their mind, it goes something like this. They say, well, I'm about to go out and compete, and I suddenly think, what if I lose? And then I think, well, if I lose, I'm going to lose my funding from UK sport. But if I lose my funding from UK sport... I'm going to struggle to afford the mortgage on the flat that I'm living in. But if I have to move out of the flat, then there is a realistic chance my girlfriend will leave me. (laughs) But if my girlfriend leaves me and my parents were so keen to have grandchildren, I don't think they're going to want to talk to me for a while. So I've fallen out with my parents. I've lost in the Olympic Games. (laughs) My girlfriend's left me. There's a possibility i'm going to turn to alcohol <laughs> and basically you're about you're about to go and play the biggest match in your life and in your mind you're living on a cardboard box as an alcoholic <laughs> the local <animal>. so this <laughs> this psychological escalation is a very conventional response to pressure and it's sometimes positioned in evolutionary psychology as the fight flight freeze response the amygdala a small almond shaped piece of the brain which was very early in evolution we share it with reptiles and other animals lights up you've just become highly emotional fearful afraid now back in the day that was no bad thing because if you were terribly afraid and you confronted the predator you would leg it the freeze you know the flight response or you would freeze so that they couldn't see you right that's a sensible evolutionary adaptation if you're on the savannah facing a dinosaur but if you're about to play a match, do you know what I mean? No, but if you're, about, if you're about to play a match and you need to have fine motor skills, if you're freezing, has anyone ever had that experience of just freezing when they've got under pressure or wanting to run away, it isn't going to help you. And so I really looked into this in some depth. And, you know, I don't want to hold myself up as someone who's learned from his mistakes magnificently. You know, that, that's not the point I'm making at all. But by finding strategies to cope with that problem, learning from what happened in Sydney, I can't tell you how much it's helped me when i face pressurised situations since that time. You know, really big, defining moments in my life. Instead of going in there and being over here, I've found ways of getting myself back to here. I mean, actually, it's quite a... Anyone interested? So, you know, it's quite a... You know, instead of saying... And this is the way that the British Olympians tried to avoid pressure. Instead of saying, what if? What if? What if? You say, well, whatever happens... And my line was, whatever happens, my parents will still love me. Now, my parents find this a slightly optimistic uh, claim. (laughs) 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 But you can see how it totally... If you can really find and find comfort in that thought you're never going to end up over there. And so it frees the mind to do the complex things it needs to do under pressure. And I'll just leave you with this thought, Rory McIlroy. Do you remember any of you guys, if you're into golf, do you remember he fell apart when he was about to win his first major at the US Masters? He was leading, he could see the green jacket in the distance, and he went on to the tee, I think it was at the 10th of Augusta, and he hit it so far out of bounds, it ended up in a position that no ball had ever finished in before. And he fell completely apart. Do you know what he did? Instead of saying, oh, instead of not facing up to that, he went and watched a video of what went wrong. He meticulously scrutinised what went wrong. And he realised that he had become way too nervous. He had ended up over there. And he created a new strategy, where as he walks from ball to ball he talks to his caddy about something other than golf, typically football or the film that they watched together the night before. 25 seconds before addressing the ball, he switches back on and he's capable of playing the game. The very next competition after the US Masters, he won the US Open. By, was it a record number of shots? He learned from his mistake. He learned from his failure. And that, the most dramatic failure of all. And I think that's a, you know perhaps a good way to,
0: to end the evening.
2: So, yeah... On that note, thank you very much. Thank
1: you.
0: That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases, and digital freebies. Thanks.